I claimed at the end of my last lecture that folk psychology is both God postulating and such that it's unlikely that science will ever make it either respectable or redundant. Okay, that was the claim I made at the end of the last lecture. There's a question already, I can't believe it. Can you remind us why it is God postulating? I'm just about to do all those things. I don't think I accept it the first time, Ryan. Okay, so I claimed at the end of the last lecture that it's both God postulating and such that it's unlikely science is ever going to make it respectable or redundant. Uh, I then offered two obvious, I said they were obvious because I'm sure you were thinking of them as I brought them up, obvious objections to my claim, pointing out that either of them is going to be grist to Dawkins' mill if they succeed. The two objections were... Firstly, science will make folk psychology scientifically respectable, and to do that it's got to reduce all its theoretical entities to scientifically respectable entities. And the second one is science will make folk psychology redundant by eliminating folk psychology altogether, uh, including all its theoretical entities. So in this lecture, I'm going to try and show that neither of these objections is as strong as it might seem. And as you'll remember, there's no conclusive argument I've got here any more than Dawkins has. All I hope to do is, is to um, make any shaky any conviction you might have that Dawkins is right. Okay, so I'm going to uh, devote the first half of the lecture to the first objection and the second half of the lecture to the second objection and then there should be time for questions, I hope. Okay, so the first obje objection is that science will make folk psychology scientifically respectable. Okay, my response to this objection is that there are inductive reasons for believing that it's unlikely that science is going to make folk psychology scientifically respectable. By inductive, of course, I mean um, in the past it hasn't been possible uh, or it hasn't been done and it's, uh, therefore it's unlikely that in the future it will be done. So the form of the objection is exactly like the form of Dawkins' own argument for the non-existence of God, which is that science has always made things respectable in the past, therefore it will continue to do, do so. I'm saying science hasn't succeeded in doing this in the past and it won't succeed in doing so in the future, but not just science. Okay, these inductive reasons are that despite sustained efforts since Descartes' time to show how we might reduce the theoretical entities of folk psychology to entities of the sort that can be reduced by science, no one has succeeded in getting anywhere near this. And these efforts have been both scientific and philosophical, uh, the latter, the philosophical efforts, have signally failed. Um, no philosopher has succeeded in solving the mind-body problem. Um, and the former, i.e. the scientific efforts, have had the illusion of success, but I shall argue that it's only the illusion of success. So, just to, to go back over that, my response is that there are inductive reasons for believing it's unlikely that science is going to... Um, make folk psychology scientifically respectable uh, and that's because it keeps on failing it's failed in the past and it will keep on failing and okay they're both scientific and philosophical so let's consider so what I'm going to do now is first I'm going to have a closer look at folk psychology and the theory it is and the sort of entities that it postulates um, and then we'll look more at why science is not going to make them 
respectable. Okay, these entities are things like beliefs, desires, and intentions, states that enter into rational relations with each other. So I'm going to pick someone out here, one with a nice scarf in front of me there, and ask her name. Liz. Liz. Okay, so let's say I see Liz doing something, and I think, hmm, that's interesting. Why did Liz do that? Uh, and I'm going to think to myself, well, what reason did she have for doing that? Maybe she believed this and she wanted that. So the reason that she smashed the glass on the floor just now was that she wanted a drink and she believed that the table was there, or she'd finished her drink and she believed that the table was there. And so she put her glass on the table and her belief that the, glass, the table was there was false. So the glass went to the floor and smashed. Okay, so, so my explanation for what seemed a rather odd behaviour is cast in times of beliefs and desires and intentions and so on. And these states enter into rational relations with each other in the sense that I'm saying, what's Liz's reason for doing what she did? Okay, her reason is she wanted this, she believed this, therefore she intended that and the reason that happened is the belief was false. Might not have been false, might have just put the glass down on the table, but then maybe I wouldn't have been so interested in explaining her behaviour because putting a glass on the table is pretty straightforward. Um, so it's beliefs, desires and intentions and the fact that they enter into rational relationships with each other that I think is, is the very important characteristic of folk psychology. Um, so these beliefs, desires and intentions provide us with reasons for doing whatever it is that we do. Okay, so my claim is that every attempt by either philosophy or science to reduce these entities, beliefs, desires and rational relations between beliefs, desires, intentions and actions and so on, um, to reduce these entities to entities recognised by science has failed despite huge e efforts. And I shall claim that in philosophy there isn't even apparent success and in science the appearance of success is illusory. Okay, so that's the argument I'm going to make good, I hope, in this area. So, why has the appearance of success in science been illusory? Well, I think empirical studies have only the illusion of success because mostly, mostly, I wouldn't like to claim all do because I hardly know about all studies, um, mostly they falsely assume that they understand what mental states are and they end up begging the question. So let me give you an example of this. Um, it's often the case when I'm talking about philosophy of mind or when I'm talking about things like this that people bring up Libet's theory of intention. Um, I'm quite, quite sure that quite a few of you all know it. Um, Benjamin Libet argued... Uh, Benjamin Libet and his team conducted an experiment in which subjects were asked to flex the fingers of their right hand whenever they wanted and to note the time at which they decided to do this. So there was a clock, with a, a large clock with a revolving spot on it and they were supposed to notice when the revolving spot, sorry, where the revolving spot was on the clock as they decided to flex their fingers. So here they were, they were sitting here, they think, OK, I'm going to do it now. And at the point they decide, I'm going to do it now, they note the position of the clock and then they flex their fingers. Okay. And Libet's team took electrical readings from the subject's scalp and electromyogram readings of their muscle movements 
and they averaged the readings over 40 flexings for each subject. Now, if we take time t uh, as the time at which the muscles moved, okay, to, in order to flex the fingers, so t is when the muscles move, um, it was shown by Libet and his team that there was a negative shift in readiness potential at t minus 550 milliseconds. Okay, MS is just milliseconds. And that the subjects noted subjective awareness of decision-making at T minus 200 to 150 milliseconds. That actually came up because there was an error in the first lot of readings, which was corrected in the second lot. But So what we've got is, if this is T, um, there's a readiness potential at T minus 550 milliseconds, and the decision to flex was happening at minus, let's say, 200, 200, 150 milliseconds before T, before the fingers actually flexed. So Libet claims that he had therefore shown that the intention to flex occurs 350 to 400 milliseconds before subjects decide to flex, and that this, says Libet, has implications for free will. Okay, how many of you are familiar with this experiment? Okay, but, but most of you, actually, which is interesting. Okay, this is often put to me as, as an example for, of science making respectable um, of part of folk psychology. Okay, but I'm going to ask, has Libet really shown what he thinks he's shown? Uh, a couple of questions here. Uh, why should we agree that the event occurring at T minus 550 milliseconds is an intention to flex rather than, for example, uh, the desire to flex? And secondly, why should we think the event occurring at T minus 200 to 150 milliseconds is a decision to flex rather than the formation of an intention to flex? So let's just get this right. And I asked for a whiteboard, but I see it hasn't arrived. So um, I'm going to do it here. Can you all see the whiteboard? Yep. I'll, if I move it into the light a bit more, might help. And it's going to collapse on me. So um, this is T. This is when the, the muscle movement occurs. This is T minus 550 milliseconds. This is when Libet says the um, intention to flex occurs. And this is minus 200 milliseconds when he says that the decision occurs. Okay, do you see how it's going? And what I'm asking is, why are we calling this an intention? And why are we calling this a decision? Okay, so that's a very interesting question for a philosopher. So you start to read Libet a little more carefully, and you see that actually he uses the language of the mind, intentions, desires, etc., um, as if all these things are completely interchangeable. So sometimes he describes the, the events that occurs at 500, minus 550 as a desire. Sometimes he calls it an intention. Sometimes he calls it a wish. Sometimes he calls it an urge. It actually starts to get quite irritating because you think, these are different things. This is like calling a chair a table, uh, etc. Not yet. 
that But that's exactly what I'm asking. Okay. okay. What Libet says has been measured is an intention. When has the person actually changed that drop or whatever has made a note No. What happens here is is that they they can actually measure objectively what's called a negative shift in readiness potential, and um, Libet is calling that an intention. And he's calling the other events that's also measurable um, in terms of subjective awareness of the subject a decision. Uh, and this is very important because he says his, his conclusion is that the intention happens before the decision does. And what's more, the intention is unconscious. So the intention occurs before the subject is... Um, subjectively aware of, a, of making the decision to flex. So obviously what these things actually are is hugely important but he uses them all interchangeably as I say, desires, intentions etc, all as if they were the same thing. Well let's have a closer look at this. Um, hang on, where were So what I want to do no, no buts at the moment, I'm sorry, let me get my argument out and then you can have your buts. So let's consider the difference between desires, decisions, and intentions. Okay, a desire is a state that arises from our subconscious. We, do, we don't choose to have desires. Desires just arrive to us. My desire to have another glass of wine, for example, will no doubt arise at about 9, 29, and 50 seconds or something. Um, but it'll come from my subconscious without any urging from me. Um, Okay, desires are more or less strong. They're urges. We sometimes think of them as urges. So I have an urge for a cream cake or something like that, or I have the urge to resist the cream cake or, or whatever. Um, they're more or less strong. Maybe my desire for a cream cake is stronger than my desire to, to get into that dress next week or whatever. Or maybe the desire to get into the dress next week is stronger. Whatever it happens will have an effect on what I choose to do. But that's what desires are. They arise from our subconscious. Um, they're more or less strong urges, and they're directed at some state of affairs. So you can't have a desire, a generalized desire. I'm wondering about that. But usually we have a desire for a Marmite sandwich, a desire for a glass of bread, or whatever. Decisions, on the other hand are momentary occurrences that essentially involve uncertainty. So if you think you've spent the evening or, or spent a sleepless night trying to make a decision, uh, what you've been doing is, is having a sleepless night... Sorry, I was going to say making a decision. You've been trying to make a decision. You've been weighing up the different things. You've been looking at the pros. You've been looking at the cons and so on. But eventually, a decision will be made. Decisions tend to make themselves. And you don't have a decision unless there's uncertainty. You're uncertain about something, and then suddenly you decide. So are you going to vote Labour, Lib Dem, or whatever the other lot are called? Um, so that was not a party political point. It was a momentary lapse of memory. Um, so... If there's uncertainty, eventually there'll be a decision. And the decision may be not to make a decision, of course, but there, there will be a decision of some kind if, if there's uncertainty. 
Um, intentions, on the other hand, are sometimes the result of a decision. So if I decide to vote for the other lot, um, simultaneously an intention will arise to vote for the other lot, okay, to, to get out there and to cast my vote. Um, on the other hand, not all intentions are the results of decisions, are they? So some, when I intentionally put the key in the lock and turn it, um, I, I haven't decided to do that. Um, it's just something I do from habit. I get home, I get my key out, put it in the lock and turn it. So that's an intentional action, but it's not the result of decision. I didn't decide to do that. It's the result of habit. So you can have decisions without intention. Sorry, you can have intentions without decisions. You probably can't have decisions without intentions. Maybe you can. Yes, I think you probably can. Um, the other thing about intentions, though, is that they can be distal or proximate. So I can have an intention now to vote in two weeks' time. Uh, that's a distal intention. You see, it's, it's not a vote to do something now to vote. It's a vote, sorry, it's a decision to vote in two weeks' time. Or I can have a proximal intention to pick up my glass now. Okay, that's, that's an immediate one. So as... As the intention is formed, it also goes into action. So intentions come in, in different varieties um, like this, whereas decisions don't. Um, so they're different, they're completely different mental states. And any philosopher of mind says, you know, if you're going to confuse desires, intentions, and uh, decisions, you're not going to get your philosophy of mind right. Um, and we should also note, given that Libet claims to have shown that free will doesn't exist, we should note that no one has ever claimed that free will has any sway over desires. Um, these arise willy-nilly from our unconscious. Free will enters the picture only at the point of deciding whether to act. So if I have a desire for a cream cake, that just arises. At that point, I make a decision as to whether to act on it or not. I decide that I will go for the cream cake or I'll decide that I'll resist and try and get into that dress next week or whatever. Um, so the question of, of whether this is, as Libet claims, an intention is actually, why isn't it a desire? Maybe at uh, minus 550 milliseconds before the flexing of the fingers... A desire arises from the subconscious. So the, the subject, if you remember, is sitting there thinking, OK, he's told me to flex whenever I want. Do I want? Not yet. Do I want? OK. And, you know, and a want arises. Maybe that's what happens at minus 550 milliseconds, in which case it could be that at minus 200 milliseconds, what happens is the formation of an intention to flex. So the desire arises, and you think, shall I act on this desire or not? And you make a decision, you will act on it, and that's what you note the conscious awareness of, the decision to flex, because actually decisions and intentions are much closer than desires and intentions, and then there's the muscle movement. The point I'm trying to get across is not that I think... You know, I mean, I think there are all sorts of questions as to what we should say these things are, but that we should go along with Libet's interpretation of his own experiment, I, I think is 
no philosopher of mind would happily go along with that because it's as if he's confusing chairs and tables, as I say. So Libet's belief that he's shown that intentions arise subconsciously before conscious decisions are made is just very easily dismissed by anyone who knows anything about philosophy of mind. He's, he's just too vague. He doesn't seem to understand um, how mental states are distinguished from each other. And if you're going to make a claim about this is what happens with these mental states, then you've got to know that. If he had just stuck to at minus 550 milliseconds, there was an event, a physical event, there was a, a negative shift of readiness potential, fine. And if he'd stuck to, at minus 200 milliseconds, the subject reported uh, conscious awareness of something, fine. And then at T there was uh, muscle movement, again, fine. But he didn't say that. He started to say, I have shown that an intention arises unconsciously before a decision is made consciously. Nonsense. May not be nonsense, but he hasn't shown it. So, because Libet fails to take seriously the language of the mind, the success he claims is entirely illusory. And I'm not saying that he doesn't succeed in showing anything, just that he doesn't succeed in showing what he thinks he shows. So, it, uh, whoa, okay, let's stop there and let's have a few questions. Uh, well, it, it was Libet who brought in free will. He, what he said was that given that the intention is subconscious, that, so that given that subjective awareness arises here, and this is entirely subconscious, the free, free will can only arise here, and therefore the action is not free because it starts before the decision happens. So, so he brought in free will, and I agree with you. I, I see absolutely no reason to, to get that conclusion from this, from this claim. He's not playing with words. He, he doesn't understand the words. He's using a language he, he is not qualified to use. As you said, had he said, here's this event we recorded, and, and, it, and here's the, another event which is closely related and happens a bit later, well, fine. It's all these extra... Yes, it's the language of the mind, which he isn't qualified to use. Sorry, let's go I on. Basically say, so, so what? You know, I understand that you're saying that he saw something interesting, but he misinterpreted it. But that's the whole thing about the scientific method. Somebody is perfectly able to go back later and say, I can actually reproduce the, the physical findings, and I choose to interpret them in a totally different way. And if you sort out the fact that sort of the actual terminology of not mixing it up, which was your criticism, how does that sort of support your argument that, uh, that the scientific sort of method can't sort of uh, make sort of FP respectable? No, no, it's not just because he got his words mixed up. It's, it's because, and, and this happens often, the idea that people use the language of the mind, the idea of intentions, beliefs, desires, and so on, without having the slightest idea that there's, there is a very good taxonomy of mental states that philosophers of mind have been putting, and, and now psychologists have been putting together 
um, very effectively, and they don't use it. Now, you're quite right. I'm, he could go back and he could say, Talbot, I understand. What you're saying is quite right. I should have stuck to the ordinary language, and that's fine. So you're absolutely right. I can't go from this one example of a very badly put together, very badly interpreted... Sorry, the experiment was perfectly fine. The, the interpretation of the experiment was very bad. Uh, can't go from that to extrapolate to all of them are. Um, but I wanted to give an example of the sort of thing I mean, and this is a particularly good one because so many people have heard of it. Um, can I just say that um, although it's very unfortunate that he used subconscious intention to label an electrical reading, the simplicity of the study was that the electrical sign of the precursor of the action occurs a certain amount of time before the mental decision to decide to flex the finger. Now, that is a significant step in, redu in reductionism. And in Sorry, why is it a significant step in reductionism? Because it shows that the idea that mental decisions have agency and they are the cause of things is perhaps not right. Why does it show that? Because the electrical activity, which is reliably and predictably the precursor of the action, occurs before the free will mental decision. Okay, um, so, so states, are causing, states are causing actions rather than having to invoke philosophical concepts of agency. But, but do you see this, this man is, is saying exactly what I'm saying? I completely agree that there's an electrical event that occurs at minus 550 milliseconds before the flexing of the fingers. I also completely agree that this event isn't uh, available to the subjective awareness of the subject, okay? Um, the subjective awareness of the subject comes in here. Now, why do you want to say um, both that this is the precursor of the action and... This, oh, sorry, let me put this another way. I'm quite happy to allow that that might be a desire and therefore it's the precursor to the action... Oh, well, okay, fine. It's a sign of, it, of brain activity, which is the precursor of both the me mental awareness and the flexing of the finger. But then let me repeat what I said earlier. Nobody, and especially no philosopher, is denying that there will be something that arises unconsciously before the conscious decision to act or not to act. So a desire arises from the subconscious... And then the person makes a decision now as to... You're, you're bringing in mental words now. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, I am. But the... An electrical impulse is not a desire or an intention. It doesn't mean philosophy. How many people understand what I'm saying? Put your hands up. Okay, not enough, not enough, not enough. I need to go over it again. Okay, let's, let's, go, let's go back to what I was saying. Nobody denies that a physical event happens at minus 500... Are you listening to me, sir? No, you're not. <laughs> OK, nobody denies that a, a physical event happens at minus 550 milliseconds. Nobody denies that a, a, an act of conscious awareness happens at minus 200 milliseconds. And nobody denies that, of course. Um, what we're denying... Now, he put a mental interpretation on this and I've said I don't 
that's not a good mental interpretation. But you have also put a mental interpretation because you want to say that the electrical um, precursor of the action event happens before subjective awareness, okay? And that this shows you that, that it happens before free will occurs. Is that what you want to say? Okay, and what I'm saying is that fits entirely with my story if instead of seeing that as an intention, we see that as a desire and this as the intention and then that fits perfectly well with my story which is that there's nothing um, free will requiring until this happens which is also when consciousness happens. No, the only thing I'm saying he got muddled is his mental language. That he should not have said that called that an intention and that a decision. Sure, that's uh, do, do you completely understand now? I understand. He shouldn't have used those words. Of course he shouldn't. But do you see my point, which is that this has no implications whatsoever for free will? No. What what I'm doing is giving one example of of what I'm claiming, and this happened. I'm sorry, it isn't, it isn't a successful reductionist finding. There is nothing, there's no successful reduction here of anything mental to anything physical. Nothing at all. Electricity and action and decision. Of course that's reductionist. Can I say, I think what he's suggesting is that once that first stage arises, T is going to happen, come what may, with or Ah, no, that's... That's certainly not the case, because actually another thing that Libet looks at is another experiment where he says, could this be the conscious decision either to act on or to veto um, a desire that arises here? And he does another experiment in which he, he similarly mixes everything up. And actually, I've, perhaps I should have talked about that as well. But... Um, there is no successful reduction. The reason there isn't a successful reduction is that you could have given an entirely different um, characterization of the reduction that would have actually left it um, correct from the point of view of uh, philosophy of mind. In other words, you might just as successfully say that that's a desire as to say it's an intention. It would be, I mean, cognitive science is a very, very young discipline. And yes, you relatively young. this experiment up with, uh, say, uh, doing a brain scan at the same time, and then possibly correlate to that to, to other elements that, that could be areas that light up where, where, where okay. someone is conscious of desires. But the thing is, I, I, I totally agree with the other person. It is a step forward in understanding brain activity that didn't exist before the experiment. I, I completely very agree. Bad, very bad definitions, but also I don't see where this is I completely, I completely, <laughs> <laughs> well, let me just say, I completely agree that this is a major step forward in, in understanding brain activity. Absolutely agree with that. What I don't think it is, is a complete step forward in, in understanding the mind. Secondly, okay, you've forgotten how this links with God. Let me just remind you. Let's go back to the beginning. 
Um, hold on. Uh, so we're looking at two objections. One is that science is going to make... In fact, we're looking at that one, the first one. Science is going to make folk psychology scientifically respectable. Um, okay, so this is the objection, and I've said that there are inductive reasons. I don't think science is going to do this because it's not succeeding so far. And then I said that um, the efforts have been both scientific and philosophical, the latter, the philosophical ones, which I haven't got onto yet, have signally failed. And I've said the former have only the illusion of success. Now, what I'm doing in talking about Libet is giving an example, because obviously I can't go through every experiment that has ever been tried, but I'm giving an example of what goes wrong when scientists try and reduce the mind to... to sorry, the, the brain to the mind. So this is only an example. Let's move on. Um, so, what I'm saying is that he uses the language of the mind as if intentions, desires, urges, wishes are interchangeable. I've looked at the differences between them, um, and I've said that his arguments are rather easily dismissed. I think quite a lot of people in this room agree with me. Now, because, well, and quite a lot disagree accept that completely. Because Libet fails to take seriously the language of the mind, the success he claims is entirely illusory. Doesn't mean he doesn't succeed in showing anything. Okay, this is what I wanted to say. Showing that one scientific study has failed to make mental entities scientifically respectable goes nowhere near showing that none do. But I'm prepared to bet that any study you come up with could be dealt with in a similar way. So I don't expect you to agree with this, but I've given you one example that I think makes it very clear that many of the scientists, or sorry, that at least one of the scientists who claims to reduce the minds to the brain has signally failed. And I would be prepared to bet that if any of you come up with another experiment that claims to do this, I could do virtually the same thing with that one. Okay, so obviously I can't go through them all. The best I can do in half an hour's lecture is give you one example. Okay, if it doesn't convince you, it doesn't convince you. But it's a condition of science making the mind scientifically respectable that science first understands the nature of the mind. And that's what I'm going to go on to say a little more about. Philosophers do understand the nature of the mind, but they too have failed to make it scientifically respectable. And since Descartes, I mean, actually, philosophers have been trying rather longer than scientists to make the mind scientifically respectable. You'll all have heard of the mind-body problem. The, the, uh, how, what is the relation between the mind and the body? Uh, a lot of people think that this problem has been solved. It's been solved by what's called the type identity theory or type-type identity theory, where there's nothing more to a mental state than a neural state. So every mental state, the belief that P, for example, is neural state N. So there's a particular type of neural state that correlates with a particular type of mental state and therefore we can claim that it is that mental state. Um, okay, repeating myself. The trouble is that philosophers have failed with this mind-body problem. I mean, they have succeeded in showing that the type-type identity theory is almost certainly false 
I'll say almost certainly because there are still a few philosophers who hang on to it, but they're very much the rump of philosophers. They failed because they keep coming up against the fact that the mental is completely different from the physical. Well, what do I mean about that? Well, let me get a flip chart here. Okay, why is the mental completely different from the physical? Well, I've got three examples here. Mental states seem to be quite different from physical states. Well, let's think about this. Let's talk about physical states for a moment, or physical objects. States or objects, doesn't matter which. Um, name a few physical objects. Yeah. Chairs, okay. Name a few. Storage. What? Computer storage. Uh. <laughs> Do you mind if we leave that one? Just because it. Column for computing. Um. That's an interesting one, actually. Do you mind if we leave that? Perhaps we can talk about that in questions. At the moment, I'm just wanting to look at the, the mental and the physical. A what? Video recorders. <laughs> Video recorders. Okay. Rainbows. Rainbows. You're all trying your hardest here. Okay, what, let me just do... These are not going to be helpful. And the reason they're not going to be helpful is, is because they're not canonical physical objects. But never mind, we'll work with them. Let's have some physical properties now. Let's think of things like colours, um, shapes... Um, let's think of relations that physical objects enter into and then we'll end up with states so the chairs being blue the pens being black um, one event's causing another event causal relations there are um, temporal relations so one event is before another isn't it uh, spatial relations, so the chair is on top of the video recorder, or we might put it the other way around the video recorder. The rainbow is over the um, houses, etc. The rain, well, the houses are under the rainbow. So these are physical objects, physical properties, and physical relations, relations between physical objects. Okay, now let's look at mental objects. Um, objects in brackets because of course we don't want to beg the question by assuming that mental objects are, are modelled on physical objects. Let's think about beliefs, desires, well let's use the ones I've been using, intentions. What are the properties of mental objects? What sort of properties are there? What, so a belief can be, it's not blue is it? You don't get blue beliefs. Into strong beliefs, yeah, okay. Um, can I put that under relations? Because, yes, there are temporal relations, aren't there, between beliefs and desires. So that belief was had before that intention and so on. Okay, but what other properties are there? So complete the sentence. That belief is... Is what? Um, can I say false rather than delusional? Yeah. 
just, just to make it easier, in the same way that I stopped, I didn't want to use computer software. Changeable. Changeable, yeah. Uh, okay. What about justified? Justified? So that belief is justified. That belief isn't justified. Uh, dangerous. Um, okay. There's another property of uh, beliefs and intentions. Um, they have contents, don't they? They have intentionality. So um, if you have a belief, that belief is a belief about something, isn't it? So you have a belief ab about the chair, that it's blue. My belief is that the chair is blue. Uh, my belief is that um, Liz is wearing a nice scarf, etc. So beliefs have intentionality or aboutness. Or another way of saying that is that they have content. Okay, now let's look at the relations between mental states. Um, temporal relations we've already got. They share that with, with, men, with physical events, don't they? So just as physical events are in time, so are mental events. But are mental uh, events in space is one belief on top of another, other than metaphorically? Is it? On top of, like this... A belief isn't a physical object, but it is real. Are you telling me that beliefs aren't real? Whoa. This is, this is going to get interesting. Let's, let's go back... I mean, before we get away from this, let's go back to the idea of whether beliefs can be in space. So um, here is... That table is in between the lectern and me, okay? Now, I know a belief can be temporally in between two other beliefs. Can it be spatially in between two other beliefs? No. Can, it, can one belief be on top of another belief? I would say yes, because if you believe that the world was created in 4000 BC, it flows from the belief... No, flows from... But it's on top of the... No, hang on. Uh, there's a big difference between flows from and is on top of, isn't there? It depends what you mean by on top of. It does. It, it what I mean by on top of is this, this tape recorder here is, is on top of the table. It's a spatial relation. Why should we talk about No, don't ask a question. I'm in the middle of making a point here. Very important. On top of means literally spatially on top of. I don't think you can have one belief on top of another, literally. Now, I do believe that you can have one belief flowing from another, but let's get a bit more technical about this. What is it for one belief to flow from another? Temporal. Sorry? Temporal. Temporal. Uh, causal. Is it causal? Stream of consciousness sounds a bit like causal. Come on, come on. One belief entails another, doesn't it? One belief is consistent with another. One belief follows from another, rationally. So if I say... No, come on, you're all talking amongst yourselves now, and I don't want you to stop and listen to me. 
Oh, it's the power thing. I love it. <laughs> Think about this. If I say, um, uh, if it was, I've got to get this right because otherwise I'd make a fool of myself. Uh, if it was a stranger, the dog, no, hang on. If the dog barked, it was a stranger. The dog barked, therefore, thank you. And it was your reason, wasn't it? That rationally followed. You could see immediately which belief had to come from that because they're rationally related. So the reason that you do something is you see that you, you want to drink, you see that the glass is there, you believe that if you pick up the glass and drink from it, your thirst will be assuaged. Assuaged? Is that how you pronounce it? Well, I, I do... Um, let me deal with that one in a minute. But the fact is that there are rational relations between beliefs. This is what beliefs are all about, in fact. You see that two beliefs can't be consistent... So you believe you left your coat there and you go to take it down and lo, there isn't a coat there. So now you have two beliefs. One belief is that you left your coat there. The other belief is that your coat isn't there. Now those beliefs can't... Actually, they could both be true, isn't they? Some bastards pinched it. But <laughs> so let me change the first belief. I believe my coat is there and my coat isn't there. Now those two beliefs can't, can't both be true. So you're forced back, instead of um, looking at the world, you're looking at your picture of the world. You're no look at, longer looking at the, wor the world that you picture, you're looking at your picture of the world and seeing that it's inconsistent, incoherent, and therefore that one of your beliefs must be junked. And you can only do this if there are rational relations between your beliefs. Now, notice that... Um, there aren't any rational relations in the physical world. If um, this pen can't entail that glass, there's no such thing as this pen's following from this glass, or uh, this pen's being black following from the glasses being on top of the table, etc. The fact is that rational relations belong to the mental realm not the physical world. Now, some of, some of you said that there are causal relations in the mental realm. One belief causes another. That's true. That does happen. But when it happens, it tends to be a malfunction. Because um, if one belief causes another without being a reason for the other... Are you with me? So your belief P causes the belief that Q... That's an association of ideas. It's not necessarily a rational move from one belief to another. For a rational move, they must be rationally related. There must be a, an, a following from, or flows from, perhaps, if you prefer that. Um, I mean, here's a good example of a cause of belief. My desire that my son isn't dead causes me to believe that my son isn't dead. That's called wishful thinking, okay? That that's, again, a malfunction because the, the desire that your sons not be dead cannot be a reason for the belief that your son's not dead. It can cause it, but it can't be a reason for it. So wh what I'm trying to do in talking about this 
is to convince you that actually the physical world and the mental world, on the surface of it, and of course the surface of it is never where we stay, but on the surface of it, they're very, very different. At the very least, um, well, I've looked at the relations. Let's have a look at the... And is there any th such thing as justification in the physical world? Can one physical event justify another? It may cause it, but it doesn't justify it, does it? They are just facts. They're not norms. Norms aren't involved here. So what I'm trying to do is, is show that on the surface of it, these two things are very, very different. My God, look at the time. So <laughs> that's the first one. Let's have a look at this. Um, rational relations seem to be quite different from causal relations. Okay, let's take A causes B, and A is a reason to believe B. Let's take A causes B first. Firstly, what are the relata of the causal relation? Okay, if we have the causal relation, what does it relate? What are the two things that it relates? So what, what are A and B here? Have a, have a go. I mean, there are lots of different theories. Events, events, somebody said, okay. And they're physical events, aren't they? Actually, uh, no, they could be mental events because we did talk about... So let's just say events there. Okay. Um, what's our evidence for saying that A causes B? We, we've seen a correlation between A and B. Um, a correlation... And a temporal relationship usually isn't it? We'd see A before B, um, so A precedes B. Anything else? Uh, no, of course it doesn't, because mental events can also be. But but the fact that um, causation is usually thought to imply a temporal relation. So if I say A is a cause of B, you would expect A to be before B, wouldn't you? Yeah. And that's all I'm saying here. And, um, sorry, say that again. Well, that's what I mean by a correlation between B and A. How would we test this belief? A causes B. And again, and again, and again. What you'd be doing would be to try and find um, an A that isn't followed by a B. And if you find an A that isn't followed by a B, you know that A causes B is not quite right. You're, you've not showed it's false, necessarily. It might be that certain types of A, A star, for example, cause B, but not the other types. Um, my God, I'm going to run out of time. That's terrible. Um, okay, so we've got some feel for, for what we mean when we say that A causes B, what we take as evidence for A causing B, and what we mean by, um, 
and how we test the claim that A causes B. Now let's have a look at A as a reason to believe B. Firstly, what are the relata here? A is a reason to believe B. What must A and B here be? Hesitations, did you say? Statements. Uh, they could be statements, yeah. Okay, what else could they be? What are statements, actually? They're expressions of, of beliefs, thoughts, aren't they? Actually, A and B must be beliefs, because statements are expressions of belief. So if I say the chair is blue, I'm expressing my belief that the chair is blue. So the relata... Sorry? Uh, it couldn't be a physical event. What it could be is a belief about a physical event. Okay, so if the physical event happens that the, the pen falls off the table, that um, couldn't be a reason for my believing B if I didn't see it. But if I saw it, so I believe that the pen fell from the table, then I might believe whatever it was that I, the other belief was, if you see what I mean. So what's our reason for... for um, saying that A is reason to believe B? Is, is it a, the observation of a correlation between the two? So if we see the belief A and the belief B correlated, so every time there's the belief A, there's also the belief B, that is a reason for believing A and B. Answer, no. I'm going to answer for you. It can't be because, um, I mean, let me think of an example here. Um, well, okay, I think this is an example. Um, I don't know your name. I know your name and I know your wife's name, which is useful. Okay, if I see Alan, um, the thought of Alan is often correlated with the thought of Janet. Is the thought of Alan such as to be a reason to have a thought of Janet or a re reason to believe that Janet is there or something like that? Answer, no, it isn't. A correlation, but that's a very bad example. I apologise for that one. Anyway, I hope you get my gist uh, because I'm going to go on. Um, the causal relation and the rational relation, the reason relation, are quite different, again, on the surface of it. Let's go down here. Um, it seems that some of our behaviours can be explained only by appeal to the principle of charity rather than the principle of the uniformity of nature. What is your name? John. John. The last three times I've said, is anyone in the room called John? Nobody has said <laughs> yes. Isn't it sod's law? That <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. You can have to come again. <laughs> um, okay, I look at him and I think... Man of a certain age. <laughs> I know what he thinks. I know what he's likely to do. I know what he's like. Is this fair? No. No, okay. But it's a perfectly good application of the principle of the uniformity of nature, isn't it? I see somebody, <laughs> a male of that age, and I think, you know, this is what they're always like. I, but I... <laughs> This is such a bad example, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry, I'm tired. 
<laughs> but let me make the point I was going to make, because the, the example works perfectly well as that. What I've got to do is say, OK, again, as I did with Gorinda, or whatever his name was here, um, this is John. He's different. This is another person. This is somebody who, with whom I can cooperate in the search for truth. If he does something mad... I shouldn't just dismiss him as mad. If he does something that appears to me to be cruel, I shouldn't think he was cruel. I should check what he understood himself to be doing. Here, I'm not using the principle of the uniformity of nature. I'm using the principle of charity. I'm assuming that any appearance of irrationality, falsehood, wickedness, etc., on his part... Until I know better, because I'm certainly not saying that people aren't wicked, irrational, etc. Till I know better, I'm going to assume it's my bad interpretation rather than his wickedness, irrationality, etc. So, okay, that was um, a romp through. Um, let's move on. So I hope I've made a point that once you actually look into what mental things are and what physical things are, if you're going to say, as so many people want to say, without any justification whatsoever, that a mental state is a physical state, that a, brain, a mental state is a brain state or something like that, you, you are saying that brain states, you can make sense of brain states having intentionality, being justified, um, being rationally related, etc. Now, we know that brain states are causally related, are they rationally related? And so on. There's a lot of work to be done. That's the point I'm making. And these reasons are behind the signal failure of all attempts since Descartes to show that the mind is scientifically respectable, i.e. reducible to the brain. And of course, the fact we've failed so far is no reason to believe we're never going to succeed. And it's certainly no reason to stop trying. I, I'm anything but a mystery monger. If we can reduce mental states to physical states, apart from anything else, it would be a very good uh, application of Occam's razor. Why should we admit these strange things if we can do it all in the other ones? Um, but many people, and it's very interesting how in the philosophical world we've gone right back from thinking that it's obvious that the mind is going to be reduced to the brain to thinking, actually, it can't be done. Uh, and that's only in the last 20, 30 years. So, I, and just a little personal history. In fact, this is why I started to believe in God, because I tried for 17 years to show we're nothing more than sophisticated computers. I was a, an adherent to functionalism, it was so-called. Um, and I decided that we are more than sophisticated computers and started to believe in God. I'm not telling you that because I did it, you should do it as well. I'm just giving you literally a, a, a feeling for what happened to me, why I decided. Okay, but I could have gone the other way and decided that as the mind doesn't seem to be scientifically respectable, as we've got all these things here that, that uh, are not physical and not apparently reducible to physical, the physical, the mind had better be eliminated because, after all, science is where it's at. Um, and if something isn't scientifically respect respectable, then it should be eliminated. Now, that brings me to the second uh, objection. So, if you remember, objection one 
was that science will make folk, folk psychology scientifically respectable. Objection two was it's going to make it scientifically redundant. Okay, so th these, are, these are the arguments of the people who believe that folk psychology will be made scientifically redundant. Okay, and just a reminder of what this is. By eliminating folk psychology completely and replacing it with another theory that postulates entirely different entities but has the same explanatory power. So, the eliminativists, so-called, believe that neuroscience is eventually going to replace folk psychology. Um, so, we'll, what we'll talk, talk about is brain states, not beliefs, desires, etc., things like that. Um, Neuro, um, neuroscience is not going to recognise beliefs, desires, intentions, decisions, because we've seen they're not scientifically respectable, so neuroscience can't recognise them. Uh, instead, it's going to eliminate these in favour of neural states. So, in explaining each other's behaviour, we won't appeal to beliefs, desires, reasons, etc. at all. We'll only explain, appeal to neural states. Now, the eliminativist reason for believing this is that, like me, they believe that there's inductive reason to believe that science isn't going to make folk psychology respectable. But unlike me, they believe that this means that folk psychology must be eliminated. But let's look at what's involved in eliminating folk psychology and all its theoretical entities. Um, it would mean, for example, that we're not rational that we don't act for reasons at all, that everything we do, we're caused to do. Now, that's fine, because uh, a lot of people believe that anyway. They believe in, in determinism. They believe that everything you do is the result of the laws of nature and the events that happened just beforehand. Even, actually, physicists don't believe that either these days, that everything is determined in that way. But, but some people do think that. Um, but the idea we're not rational bothers me that. It bothers me to think that, that we don't act for reasons, that everything we do we're caused to do. Okay? We also have no beliefs about anything. We have neural states, and those neural states cause us to act, but we don't have any beliefs. We have reason to believe that we don't have beliefs. Um, they think that there's no such thing. This is not my belief I'm putting forward now. Very importantly, this is the beliefs of the eliminativists. Um, they believe there's no such thing as content or meaning. There couldn't be, actually, because the only thing that has content is a belief, isn't it? Or rather, there are two things that have content or meaning. One is our beliefs, and the other is the sentences that we use to express our beliefs. Okay, we think of the first, beliefs have content, and sentences have meaning. But if there aren't any beliefs, there aren't any contents, are there? And if there aren't any contents, then there isn't any meaning. So the idea that there's meaning in the words that we use is illusory. And worse, the only things that are true or false are beliefs or the sentences that express them. We say things like, a fact is true, but that's actually sloppy talk. The only thing that's true is a belief about a fact because truth comes from content. So if the content of my belief is that the chair is blue, uh, that's true if 
the chair is blue and false otherwise. Sorry to state the obvious, but do you see what I mean? Uh, if that chair is in the relation of things that are blue, then the chair is blue, otherwise it's not. Truth or falsehood come from content and meaning. Content and meaning come from beliefs uh, and contents. Um, and beliefs are things that are rationally related to each other. If you're going to get rid of one, you get rid of the lot. So if eliminativism is true, it would mean all these things are also true. And in fact, the world of the eliminativists is like the world of the hard determinists, those who believe that causal determinism precludes free will, um, in that everything that matters to us the choices that we make, the truths that we believe, etc., is illusory. But we might say, as the eliminativists do, that we shouldn't worry about this, because if eliminativism is true, it's true now. And now is okay, isn't it? See what I mean? I mean, we're sitting here having this discussion now, and determinism and, and the eliminativists are not saying that we're not having this discussion. They're just saying that there is no meaning to it. There is no purpose to it. There is no reason behind it, etc. If you like, it's all pointless. But they're not saying that we're not having it. So if it's true, it's true now. Um, and if now is okay, why should we worry about the non-existence of truth, meaning, etc. Maybe we shouldn't. We just carry on as we are going. I, I do see your questions. I'm just very conscious. Yeah, we're not responsible for our actions. And we're not responsible for our actions. There's no free will, etc. So, as someone who does worry about meaning, truth, reason, free will, belief, etc., I find it completely impossible, um, that's a psychological statement about me, incidentally, to go along with the eliminativists in their belief that science will one day prove it to be true. Instead, I believe that science will never eliminate folk psychology because I think that meaning, truth, reason, free will, etc. really do exist. But to return to Dawkins, is this an empirical issue? Because if you remember, we started with the claim that the God hypothesis is a scientific hypothesis, so this is presumably an empirical issue. Well, I think it's clear that science might prove eliminativism true. Maybe in 50, 100 years' time, whatever, maybe in 20 years' time, the eliminativist will have been shown to be right and will eliminate folk psychology. Okay, completely accept that that's possible. Um, but it's equally clear that a failure on the part of science to show that eliminativism is false wouldn't demonstrate that eliminativism is false. See what I mean? Because the elimination of folk psychology might be just around the corner. In other words, we can never be sure that we haven't, or sorry, that we won't ever succeed in eliminating folk psychology. The only discipline that could demonstrate the falsehood of elim eliminativism by showing that embracing it involves a contradiction is philosophy. So, eliminativism, is it an empirical hypothesis? Science could show that it's true, but couldn't show that it's false. Only philosophy could show it's false. So, in summary, that's how slept this one. There are three possibilities. 
either Dawkins is right, and science is going to make either folk psychology, sorry, folk psychology either scientifically respectable or scientifically redundant, or the eliminativists are right, and as science won't make folk psychology respectable, it will eliminate it, i.e. make it redundant. Or I'm right, because as science will neither make folk psychology respectable or make it redundant, we continue to have reason that God exists, and that reason is the existence of reason, truth, free will, content, meaning, etc. Um, hang on, I went the wrong way. There's a reading list that I didn't have time to do separately, so I put on there. You won't be able to read it now, but it'll be on your things, and mine's a glass of red. Uh -huh. <laughs>